0: Welcome to VR Hermits, a podcast about virtual reality development. I'm Dave Ramsey.
1: And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going, Dave?
0: Doing really good, Joe. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing pretty good. What you been working on?
0: Uh, I have been continuing my search for uh, or or my exploration of the other tools that are inside Unity. And I've been playing with the profiler. Um, And there is some neat stuff in there. Um, the big trick was I I needed kind of a test case because you can't just really walk into the profiler and go, Ooh, look, lots and lots of bars and lines and things. I, this totally makes sense. It helps when you either have some code that performs badly or two versions of code that you want to compare performance.
1: Do, and, you, do you need some bad code?
0: <laughs> I'm available for freelance work. Well, I kind of had to, I, I, manufactured some if you recall we had a conversation a number of weeks ago about a um a script that i had written for generating an object field Mm -hmm. so a large number of objects filling a volume evenly spaced out and so it makes it very easy for me to throw a consistent and reproducible number of objects into the play area at a particular point in time. And so I just kept cranking up that number, basically reducing the spacing between the blocks until, um, I had like 5,000 little cubes flying across the screen, all of them being affected by the gravity of four different singularities. Uh, one pusher and three pullers. And so just kind of dropping all of those things into that space all at once. And yeah, it has an impact on your frame rate, oddly enough. Um, (laughs) So started digging in there and it really lets you, the profiler window really lets you isolate where in the code the time is being consumed. And I'm using the, the larger concept of code. Like, including in Unity's engine and in your shaders and things like that. It's just all of this stuff together, all the things. You know, at certain points in this code, until I turned collision off between these 5,000 little toys, um, the collision tracking themselves of all those toys hitting each other was consuming most of the time.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: At certain moments. and So you can just see, oh, look, the top thing during this particular time slice is collision physics tracking. Okay, cool. Let me go turn that off. Now these things don't collide, don't actually collide with each other. Try it again. Okay, now I can isolate, you know, more of a problem area. Um, And so all of those things kind of appear and in an organized way. So they're categorized into large chunks like all of your um, all of your behaviors, effectively all of your update behaviors for the most part. but all of your behaviors get kind of grouped together is here's all the scripts. And then in there you can see the exact actions that are being called, whether it's collision stuff, um, the update functions. So let's see it's update. script run behavior update. and inside that is behavior update. And inside that is all of the update functions that are being called. Hmm. Um, and even those are grouped. So all of my toy update functions, toy, again, being the my generic term for a thing that is affected by gravity, which I guess is not a very good word. But in, in the context of what I was making, it was a perfect word. Um, but yeah, a toy. The toy.update is the one that was controlling noticing where the singularities are and getting pulled in the appropriate direction. Um, It was being called 5,000 times by 5,000 different toys. But in the profiler, that's just one line item. It's toy.update. And it says it was being called 4784 times. (laughs) And it told me exactly how many milliseconds that consumed, which was what percentage... Of the overall frame. So, um, and
1: what what were those numbers like?
0: So, while the toy was doing that logic, it was accounting for twelve to fourteen percent
1: of each frame or each second
0: of, of each frame. Basically,
1: it's oh, still pretty incredible.
0: Um it was it still seemed to be enough to drag down the frame rate
1: mm-hmm.
0: um it was about ten to twelve milliseconds just mm-hmm. on running that
1: like what kind of frame rates were you getting and what kind of machine were you on
0: so it was on my v r machine so it's a uh i seven four gigahertz and then a ten seventy Graphics card. Okay. Okay. Um, So, yeah. So, my next step then, once I had kind of those baseline numbers and I was pretty sure I knew what it was I was measuring, I commented out all of that update code. For fun, it was just the code inside the update function. The update function was still there. This will get interesting in a second. And then on... I moved all of that code into the field object itself. So there's a a game object that I place in the scene that is just think of it as like a large prism shape that is used as the outer boundary that gets populated by all the little things. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that thing is still there. And it, it, at this point, owns all of the little objects that it spawns. So what I could do is I could put the management code in there and just have that one loop through everything that's happening.
1: So I, I have an idea for you. Uh huh. Um, if you have a chance, you should download that special version of Unity that has the job system and entity, entity component system and try to convert this to that new model and kind of compare the three options of like the doing it at the toy level doing it at the manager level and then doing it with the new super performance stuff and see what kind of differences you get I think that'd be pretty cool
0: I'm just writing that down because that sounds like a fun idea
1: you can write a blog post about it actually <clears throat> we have a, I don't think we ever use it but we do have like a blogging feature built into our podcast site so. cool
0: okay so, I move all that code into um, into the, the object field, game object, and run it again. <clears throat> and until I started really digging into the numbers, there was almost no difference. Hmm. So, there's a couple of things that come out of this. One is that... Even though there was no code inside the update function any longer in the toy, the toy.update kept showing up in the profiler. So I was like, oh, the compiler isn't optimizing that away. That's interesting. Let's, Let's dig into that further. And so I went and commented out the entire update function itself in the toy and run it again. And toy dot update is still showing up in the profiler.
1: Did you delete it?
0: <clears throat> I well, I completely commented it out. I mean, it it should just be raw text at that point, and not compile to anything. So what it appears happens is if you have a script tied to an object, that script gets sent the update command, even if there's no update function
1: that's what i read a couple weeks ago in that uh unity optimization blog post indicated that if you delete the update method from your class entirely that doesn't happen really it's not supposed to happen maybe if it is happening then you got a bug to report
0: hmm okay i'll have to dig into it um at that point 4,700 calls to an update function that didn't do anything was Mm. taking about one millisecond. Which is about 2% of the overall performance.
1: So maybe that's just the mono behavior checking to see if it needs to be calling update on that class then.
0: Could be. If it is, then I would suggest that it's a potential area of optimization for Unity itself in the compiler would be to somehow tag objects that don't need to have update called. The other one that I did not have time to check was whether that was functionally effectively per script. So, you know, when I was playing with my earlier, uh, we were talking about it in refactoring a prototype episode, Mm -hmm. um, I was tying three or four scripts to a single game object. And I'm wondering if all of those are getting updates thrown at them, even if they don't have an update function, which means Mm -hmm. tying lots of objects or lots of scripts to a large number of objects could actually generate a performance issue.
1: Yeah. I know, like, this kind of testing is valuable for me because as I'm playing with this bowling demo, I've got some things that that need to happen on the pin level and some things that need to happen on the pin manager level and doing a lot of things. Um actually the pin doesn't have an update method right now. I got rid of it and replaced it with a coroutine. Um but there are things that the pin manager does like when when pins get knocked over, they can check themselves and say, hey, am I knocked over? If I am, then de- deactivate myself. And then uh, I just have that do work on a co routine. Actually, no, it's not a co. I'm sorry, it's not a co. It's based on the collision. So once it detects a collision, it checks to say, "Hey, d- you know, what happened to me? Am I still standing? If I am standing, then don't do anything. But if I got knocked over, then de- deactivate me, and remove force, remove velocity and angular velocity. Thank you very much. That did work, by the way. Mm, awesome. Um, and then with other things happening at the pin manager level like actually checking to see who is standing and assigning a point for each one that's not at the end of the frame as well as rotating all the pins back to place and putting them back where they belong and then reactivating them i could move some of that down to the pin level and i probably should um but it was just a quick way to like i have to iterate over those 10 or more transform points to where I'm going to put pins when I respawn them. Mm-hmm. So I figured in that loop, I might as well do the checking to see um, like the checking and the rotating and the, and the placing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So while it may not be the, like, I, I haven't done enough testing with this to have the final perfect answer. I also haven't tested it across multiple versions of unity, but in general, for the most part, it doesn't appear that there is a significant performance difference between doing it at the manager level and doing it at the pin level, Hmm. unless by doing it at one of those levels, you pick up a, um, uh, some kind of advantage. For example, one of the things that I do in for each of these objects is go out and find all of the singularities and then plot, the vectors to each of them so that you can apply a gravitational force that pulls towards all the pulling singularities and then pushes away from the pushers. And if there's a way to do that math once for all of your things or cache data as part of that process, then like, for example, we were talking about an optimization at one point where I could say, Past a particular distance, let's say that the gravity doesn't affect anything. So that mm-hmm. once a cube reaches a particular distance, I stop checking it against things that don't have the power to pull it back no matter how long. Because it's flying away too quickly. Um, <clears throat> so if that kind of thing can be cached up so that it only has to be done once for all of those things, then yes, absolutely, you could move it into the top. Into the, the manager. But the big point of this is, once again, do not prematurely optimize. Yeah. I I don't think that it's worth caring about as long as your code is well-organized. If your code is well-organized, it doesn't look like it matters all that much where that code exists. And so if it all logically makes sense and you're not bumping into having to kind of bind these two objects heavily together so that they can never function without each other, you know, or something like that. You get Mm -hmm. these, you know, too many connections between two objects. Um, If you're not getting that, then leave them separate, leave it at two levels. It's not a huge thing. I mean, I had to throw thousands of objects to get a slowdown that was noticeable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, once the so the singularities that pull when they contact one of the cubes, they eat it, and once it got down to a thousand cubes, everything's flying around at one hundred and twenty frames a second.
1: Hmm.
0: So and and also bear in mind that the code that I've written for doing the singularity pulling and whatever was first pass, completely not optimized code. So there's a lot of room to be gotten there before you start rearranging the architecture of your game. So I would say don't worry about that duality if it's working for you and the stuff makes sense and the code works.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely fine for a demo for what I have now. I may want to optimize it at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. What I was thinking, though, while you were talking, because I wasn't listening... I'm a terrible podcast. Co-host. <laughs> um, Proceed, Joe. You've talked a lot about doing multi-threaded coding over the years. And I'm not saying that I need to do this or should do this for the bowling game, but it would be kind of interesting to learn how to do this would be my, like the logic of the pin managers, because there are going to be multiple of them in a scene. I don't need them to do what they do as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. I need them to just do it and then let me know when it's done. So I'm almost thinking of kind of turning it into moving all the logic on into the pin manager and then whenever the pin manager starts a routine, the end to you know reposition and respawn all the pins, it can just set a flag when it's ready and that flag is what calls, starts an event to respawn that pin manager and thus the pins. I'm almost wondering if, if we could actually write that entire class to run on a separate thread or on a background thread Like, it doesn't need to happen right away. Just let me know Mm -hmm. when it's happened, then it goes back into the queue and it can be respawned somewhere else in the scene. Um, Not sure if that's a good way of doing things, but it may be an interesting way for me to learn some multi-threaded stuff.
0: Yeah, I have not played with the multi-threading in Unity much. Off the top of my head, you're probably looking at some kind of callback system Mm -hmm. that says, spawn a separate thread to do all of this math. And when it's done, call this function. And so mm-hmm. it's not set a thread. It's fire this command. Or I'm sorry, not set a flag. But it's fire this command when you're done. And that okay. command is your reset pin manager. But all of the background data has been set. Um, yeah. Uh, it, the multi-threading is complicated enough in general. And introduces a whole host of new problems that I wouldn't advise messing with it if you don't really, really need it. Um, I mean, you can do it as a learning thing, but, you know, coroutines were kind of designed for this Mm -hmm. without having to worry about all of the things that you bump into when you start doing, I don't want to say real multithreading, but but the deeper level of multithreading.
1: Yeah, and I'm using a coroutine on the pin manager now. So it basically what starts its routine is a collision from the ball and a collider just around the pin manager, and that just calls a coroutine in three seconds. And it's kind of a cool blend of a coroutine that defers itself for three seconds and then runs like every – I think I have it like 0.05 seconds. So it'll just – it will run as long as it needs to finish, but it doesn't ever take more than like two loops through that. Um, which was kind of neat to be able to figure out how to like divide a co-routine in half. Like don't do anything for a second and then do this as quickly as possible, mm-hmm. but not as quickly as the update method. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm thoroughly abusing co-routines in this project. <laughs> I, I think I have like eight classes in the project and Maybe 40 functions, and I'm guessing 20 of those functions are coroutines. Okay. Maybe maybe a little overdone. It's like we talked about a couple weeks ago. Like, you know, the developer learns a new tool. Like, yeah. everything's a nail.
0: <laughs> this is now called coroutine bowling.
1: <laughs> Pretty much. Although, I did come up with an alternate game idea to jump on the whole Battle Royale craze. Uh-huh. It's you know, I thought about the bowling royale a <laughs> hundred people, a hundred lanes, yeah, no, I'm kidding, I'm not going to make that I,
0: I I think it's a viable product line
1: <laughs> go for it there,
0: there are people that would probably play that.
1: I don't want to get all the death threats and hate mail that people get. <laughs>
0: So, yeah, that's that's been my fun for the week. I'm certainly going to dig into this some more, see if I can nail down exactly what's happening where. Um, I also wasn't using the very, very latest and greatest Unity version. So, who knows if there's an extra optimization in there somewhere. I mean, the thing's constantly in flux. So, chasing after it is both important and kind of silly in a weird way. Yeah.
1: I- I'm kind of declaring Unity not Influx. Um, <laughs> so I, I read an article. Like We talked a couple weeks ago about during their keynote, they, they announced a new release cycle, and they would mm-hmm. have three releases a year and a stable release at the end of every year that would last for two years. And so I, I read a blog post that follows up on that stuff and clarified some stuff from unity <clears throat> and essentially they're turning 2017.3 they're they're doing another point release called 2017.4 which isn't really a new version it's just a neat way of wrapping up mm-hmm. all of those minor changes and saying this is the version that's going to get the stable release for 2 years stable support for 2 years and then in that same post was something that kind of I kind of didn't like which was the other versions the uh, tech releases 2018.1, 2018.2. Those are obsolete as soon as the next one comes out. We're not obsolete, but those are those are not the the supported version. And I thought that was a little too aggressive for me. So I'm just aside from trying things out, I don't think I'm gonna use 2018 for a while. Even once once it's out of beta. I think I'm just gonna stick with 2017.4 because it's the, the new things are really cool, but mm-hmm. none of them are far enough along for me to want to jump ship. Like the shader graph is really cool, but it's also just really kludgy at the same time. Yeah. Like I'm better off not writing shaders at this point than trying to mi- migrate an entire project to that just for that. I, I
0: don't know that there's a huge difference between what you just described as their policy regarding those point releases and what it's been all along. Because... Like 2018.1, they were never going to do an update to. They were just going to make 2018.2.
1: No, but they're still, like, they just released an update to 2017.3 like two weeks ago. They just released a bunch of bug fixes for that. What I'm saying is they're not planning on doing that anymore for the non tech releases, at least from okay. what I understood from this article. Like, when 2018.1 comes out, it'll be out for a couple of months. They'll start working on 2018.2. But when 22.8, When when 2018.2 comes out, those bug fixes in 2018.1 effectively stop. If I'm reading this correctly, right? And like, I I don't want to have to migrate every time Unity does a release. Yeah. To to put out small fires.
0: Well, but I don't know that would they have made the bug fixes to 2017.3 that they did if 2017.3 wasn't about to become 2017.4. Or where they know. just have made the new updates to the latest version, I like don't know. the the model that I got from what I'll admit is cursory reading on the topic was you kind of pick a version and stick with it, and it might be mid cycle, like that's okay. But kind of where you started your game, that's probably where you're gonna hang out unless you need one of the new features in one of the new versions. Because there's people running around out there still maintaining games in like Unity four.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like they just they just keep adding new features in the old tool set because there's not been anything that they needed to update it and there was no point in taking the overhead of updating to the latest tools. And so that just seemed to me the way the model worked. And so if you yeah, started but- a game in 2018.2, when 2018.3 comes out, that doesn't really change anything.
1: Yeah, but they were still releasing point releases and bug fixes and security patches and things like that for 2018 or 2017.2. I was still using it until okay. like December or so, and they were still updating it. So I think I, I think what they're trying to do is reduce that. They're, basically, mm-hmm. they're at any given point they're supporting like five or six versions of unity and they're now saying we're 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 supporting two right the most current tech release and the most current long-term release okay um which makes it a, a lot easier for them and they'll probably have they'll probably be able to move a lot quicker with new stuff since they're not supporting so many versions but from my perspective it just seemed like i'm halfway through a project and the version of unity that i'm working on isn't supported anymore, and there are critical bug fixes that I'm not going to get unless I migrate Unity to a new version. Mm. Which that doesn't, you know, that doesn't seem super great to me. I'm just thinking of like all the times that's happened in FileMaker. Yeah. Like, I know now Unity's been much more stable than FileMaker for new releases, but in the FileMaker world, you don't. You don't take a production file to the new version of FileMaker within like the first three months. You just don't. It's a bad idea. And people do it the first day and every year it's the same thing. It's just like you could probably make a living off of just bailing people out that first week of release. (laughs) Wait a second. Let me write that down. We got a a new version coming soon. Joe's going to get some consulting. But yeah, Unity has been much more stable, at least from what I've done with it. My projects are fairly basic, though. So I have no idea what other people's experience are.
0: Yeah, that would be interesting to get some good input on.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely want to talk to some other game developers and studios, like, um, especially people that I know have been working on projects for over a year. Like, what's what do you do? Do you just pick a version and stick with it, or you just you just keep migrating? Like, I know one company that's been working on a project for about a year and a half, and they've got about eight people working on it. I'm wondering, do do they just, like, draw a line in this hand and say, everybody just keep this version installed, and then we'll work on this? Or do they try to keep everybody updated? Or does it matter? Yeah. So what else are you working on, Joe? (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So we went to I guess I'll get to what I'm working on later, but we went to a VR meetup on Tuesday night. Do you remember do you remember that?
0: I do. Yes, we did.
1: Back in the day? Yes. Last week.
0: That was back so, when there was caffeine.
1: <laughs> yeah, Dave uh Dave quit caffeine last week. For the record, we we uh We've been recording this for about 5 hours now but Dave keeps nodding off.
0: <laughs> it's it's uh it's a little bit of a shock to the system adjusting to no longer having a constant drip of an amphetamine. Uh, it's it's kind of weird how how your body reacts to losing that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I uh I don't know. I don't drink as much caffeine as I used to, but I, I still drink tea every morning. And I recently Realized that the co-working place I go to has free coffee and tea. So that's maybe not the best thing for me to know.
0: (laughs) So you were talking about that cool VR meetup that we went to.
1: Yes. Yes. So VR Columbus. It was hosted at the Columbus Idea Foundry. And uh, it's a meetup I've tried to go to several times and I just never made it there. It's always been something else going on. Um, And I didn't really know what to expect. I wasn't sure if it was like a VR gamers enthusiast meetup or a developer meetup or something in between. Um, I think it's something in between, but the one we went to had a very developer-heavy focus, and we got to try Leap Motion, which was pretty cool. Yeah, that was pretty um, slick. So it was working with the Vive and uh, did a couple of tech demos, went through all the demo scenes. You and I both got to try it. And, uh, it's, it's far from perfect, but it's definitely good enough for a lot of cool things. Um, it wasn't super accurate with really like minute motions. Like I tried to lock my fingers together and twiddle my thumbs and it had no idea how to deal with that, (laughs) (laughs) but doing kind of more exaggerated gestures, like you know, pinching and pulling things. Um. I was thinking how cool it would be if it worked in Virto studio. I sent a message to the developer of that today asking if he has any plans of that because his, his menuing system being one-handed would actually work really well with the late motion menuing idea where you just like turn your hand and the menu comes out the side. And then particularly working with lines and vertexes and just being able to pinch and pull them with 3D models in VR would just be fantastic. I think the hardest thing about those 3D modeling things in VR for me is trying to use the Vive controllers or the Windows Mixed Reality controllers. They're just clunky instruments for that kind of precision. Mm -hmm. And the only time I can ever really be super successful with them is if I like scale myself to ridiculous proportions.
0: Yeah, Uh, I I thought it was really, really slick. But the precision was low enough that I didn't... I I liked it as me liking technology Mm -hmm. that I don't expect other human beings to really get. I think it would be really hard to actually do much with it where it is right now in the sense that like I had a really hard time, like just sticking a finger into the, into a particular button.
1: Just, I didn't have that everything. It was pretty precise for me. I think it kind of needs to be calibrated by, person and I might have been the lucky one because I was the first one to try it mm-hmm. for that demo um, but also like it was pretty precise for the buttons but the buttons were like you know five times the footprint of a key on the keyboard like they mm-hmm. were they were intentionally big exaggerated buttons um, you, you weren't going to do something at the level of like a standard QWERTY keyboard with this thing
0: yeah except that they demoed one later
1: but that was a really big one though it yeah. wasn't a tiny you you weren't gonna type like that really, like different <laughs> keyboard. you were gonna punch little buttons in which would be kind of cool in, in and of itself but
0: yeah Um one of the things that i like so much about the vive is how it, for its limitation in the hand controller and the fact that you're you know, gripping a stick and there are buttons and things on it is that for every tiny little motion of my hand in reality the Vive controller picks that up mm-hmm. and that it maps all of that beautifully, at least depending upon game. And so the motions that my hands are making are exactly the motions that are happening in the game and the leap motion just didn't like I could reach out and pick up a thing and it wouldn't register that my fingers had properly closed at the right time in the right place to pick it up yeah. now granted it worked seventy five percent of the time, which is amazing again, like from the technology side it's it's really cool tech, but that needs to be ninety nine percent yeah. To be better than what I can do with a Vive, because with a Vive, I can literally just reach out, go, tick, and hit the trigger and pull the thing, and it goes exactly where I want it to go and exactly the way that I want it to go. And when I throw a thing, it gets exactly the kind of velocity that I expect it to have. And so none of it breaks my immersion. And with the leap motion, I spent a lot of time going, wow, I'm in VR. You know, it was it was closer to uh, Waldo grips where my hands are doing something and that is translating through the computer into an action on the screen. Not my hands are grabbing the thing. Mm -hmm. It was close. It was really impressive. I want to watch it as it goes, but
1: it's, it's also got a fairly narrow area that it can watch. So I had to hold my hands in front of me in a way that I normally wouldn't hold mm -hmm.
0: them. Yeah.
1: Um, so there was that. I have seen some pretty cool stuff with it. Uh, even recently, one of the guys I follow on Twitter is working on like a magic system where he just draws kind of glyphs and shapes or even letters in the air. So he'll like draw a circle and then make a shape inside it and that will turn into a spell that he's casting and then he kind of uses his hand to you know activate the spell. It's pretty mm-hmm. cool. Um, so I can see it being much more fun for like abstract stuff like that than super precise, like draw a circle and then draw a square in it to make the block spell i don't know mm-hmm. i'm not that kind of nerd
0: <laughs> very, very dr strange
1: um but yeah it was pretty cool i liked it um i didn't rush out and buy one but you know okay now, also talked to...
0: now that's impressive you it, let me confirm here as of today you did not rush
1: out and buy one i, I have not bought one
0: okay Just, just confirming, just so I know that when you have one by Thursday, that
1: Amazon. Late <laughs> motion. Ooh, there. Yeah, I can get one for sixty nine dollars and thirty two cents. It'll be here tomorrow.
0: Oh, that's almost. That's almost reasonable.
1: Yeah, let's see here. Bigger one? That was the PC and Mac version. There's also the VR bundle for about 90 bucks. So this is not an expensive piece of equipment, considering what it does. Um, he did the, the guy who was doing the demo did mention that the mounting system it leaves a lot to be desired. Um, they tend to fall off a lot. The adhesive they ship with it is not the best. So there's that. But uh, yeah, it's a neat tool you know, maybe something to add to my toolkit someday, but I don't really need it right now. Yeah. So also at that VR meetup, we met, we met lots of other developers and Columbus business people doing VR stuff or working in the 360 video market. We also met an author, um, Charles O'Donnell, who re- wrote a book called shredded a dystopian novel. And I finished that last night and uh, it's a pretty good book. It's, I'm not going to try to give anything away in case you want to read it, but I would, I'll post a link to it in the show note, but uh, it really takes a, an entertaining look, but a hard look at some of the ramifications from just like signing our privacy away to big companies and government. And uh, it was an enjoyable book. It does deal pretty heavily with addiction and sex addiction. So if, that's something that disturbs you then maybe stay away but uh if you can handle that stuff it's definitely worth reading it's definitely food for thought um actually sent a link to kent by hoping he would uh read this because he has been talking about these types of issues for a couple years now in his podcast about the privacy concerns in vr and related technologies And, and this this is this book is heavily reliant on vr but also like You know, connected devices, connected clothing, all kinds of stuff is like everything in this world is like basically sucked into the Internet and processed. And it's like, yeah, I kind of don't want to live in that world. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I would check it out. So I also I spent most of the week not developing, Uh, hardly touched Unity at all. Actually, I think I, I spent about five hours working in on the Radical Bowling Project And most of that was on Friday. Spent the rest of the week looking for freelance work and making a website, making a resume, signing up for LinkedIn, and then feeling bad about myself (laughs) for signing up on LinkedIn. Uh, Also made a Unity Connect page, which is kind of a cool place. There's not not very many people there. Um, If you are a Unity developer, I encourage you to go make a Unity Connect page and Get involved with that because it's a pretty cool place to hang out. I've seen some interesting things there, and just and I think it has a lot of potential. The web app itself definitely needs a lot of work, but they uh, they have a nice little you know beta in italics next to Unity Connect. So. Um, so I didn't spend a ton of time developing. We'll talk about what I did in a moment. But I went to prototype and play on Friday night, which is the other Cog meeting. Mm-hmm. It's, So the Central Ohio Game Dev Group has a meeting every currently the first Saturday of every month, and then they have a second Friday night of the month where they do a prototype and play and build session where you can just hang out and eat pizza and work on your game or show other people your game. And uh, I'd never been to that one, but I actually had something to show, so I went to it. And uh, I was really tired by the time it happened. I had been at the place since 6.30 in the morning, and the event started at 6 um, p.m., so I was pretty tired and uh, ate some pizza, did some demos, um, didn't get a ton of feedback at that one. The VR meetup, I got a lot of critical feedback about people um, commenting on various aspects of the aesthetics or the gameplay or the physics, Um, People who really knew their VR. So I got a lot lot of really good feedback and ideas from that. At Prototype and Play, I mostly got, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. Anyway, I'm going to go try the next game. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe not as useful, you know, purely useful a session as it was at COG or, or the VR meetup. But it was still fun to, I guess, get out of the house. I will say by the end of the week, after three, basically three meetups in a week (laughs) and showing my game to over 50 people and just a lot of social stuff this week. I did nothing this weekend. I mean, nothing. I didn't want to talk to anybody. And like, I was, I had the phone on do not disturb. I didn't even open the curtains yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Just didn't want anything to do with people, which is why I was able to read an entire book yesterday. Um, yeah, that, that level of social involvement definitely takes a toll on me. <laughs> so what have I been working on? <clears throat> so the the radical bowling thing, there was a couple of things I wanted to touch on about like demoing that. Mm-hmm. And I guess the most important one, <clears throat> this game works really well on the Vive. It works okay with the Windows Mixed Reality Controllers. With the obvious limitations that when you're doing a backswing, the headset can't see that controller, so the the throws are just not as smooth. Mm. The other thing that I really don't like about those controllers is everybody hits the Windows button, which takes you out of the of the app into the Windows cliff house. Then everybody gets confused about where am I? What do I do? And of course I can't see what they're doing because all I'm seeing is Unity, and their head like the headset's still feeding. The motion data to Unity, so they're still moving around in the Unity player, <laughs> But they're in the cliff house. I'm like, do you see a SteamVR Steam VR window anywhere? Yeah, it's on the floor. Like, okay, point and click at it. I'm like, So I, by Friday night, I was basically handing people the controllers and saying, don't push this button. <laughs> and they would say, okay. They would look at me kind of quizzically, and I would say, do you like cats or dogs? I said, oh, I like cats. I'm like, If you push this button, cats will die. <laughs> Dogs will die. <laughs> <laughs> that, that seemed to work for the most part. There was one or two people that killed cats and dogs, but it's a necessary sacrifice.
0: Oh, okay.
1: But yeah, I think if I do more demos with that, I think you just need to pizza, put a piece of tape over that button because it's not an overwritable button. It's you know a system level thing that does take you to the Cliff House whether you want to or not. And it's, you know, pretty much the easiest button to find with your hand. So, thanks, Windows. So in terms of the game itself, um, not a ton has changed. Like I said, I only worked on it for a couple of hours. I added a really basic menu to it and fixed some bugs, basically. So there is a, when you fire up the current version, um, there's just a menu a 2d Raider or unity menu right in front of the lane and you can just reach out and click free play mode which is exactly what it sounds it's one lane as many balls and frames as you want um, still use the same scorekeeping mechanism but uh, other than that it's just play get used to the you know the physics of it and see what you think and then there's also the uh, demo wave mode which is a slightly better version of the wave that you tried last week i made some of the short lanes lanes that would only be there for six seconds i turned those into 10 seconds and i kind of i think i grew the entire thing from two and a half minutes to like three minutes and five seconds or so Mm -hmm. so it's still fairly short but it's a little bit longer and there's a lot more overlap during some of those multi-lane sessions and it was just generally easier for people to wrap their head around I didn't spend a ton of time on that because I'm not planning on actually doing that lanes appear and disappear thing. That was just the easiest way I could think to demonstrate the concept mm-hmm. of wave-based bowling. Um, but the menu was pretty easy. I actually have it working. I've been using the Steam VR interaction system. So you can, if I had laser pointers on the controllers, you could use laser pointers to point and click the menus, or you can just reach out with your hand and pull the trigger to do the interaction thing. Or if you're on your PC, you can just mouse over and click that way, which is kind of cool. Being able to do three very different things with one button. Um, So I guess what I wanted to talk to you and get some feedback about what you think I should do with this project in terms of a business From a business standpoint, um, some people think I should turn it into a product and release it on Steam at some point. It's obviously a long way from that. Like it needs a lot of work. I've got a ton of things I wanna do with it for for that type of project, Um, including making the waves based on, basically like the pin manager that we've been talking about are essentially gonna turn into like flying objects that fly in over the side of the arena and land somewhere and spawn pins or maybe they rise out of the ground and spawn pins, but they'll actually be physical objects in the game of their own right. Um, And then those pin managers could have 10 pins or 21 pins or hundred pins or, you know, have weird formations, um, have, you know, lots of formations next to each other or kind of cascading from each other. There's a a lot of things I can do with that to make that interesting. For the wave mode, there's also what we talked about last week of like one, one ball, one frame, or two balls, one frame, um, or one set of pins. And you you know, you can do different things with that. There's also the idea of like getting rid of the pin manager when not getting rid of the pin manager, getting rid of the lanes that move around now, having one big open arena floor with the lanes. But when I tried that before, it was almost impossible to hit pins that were far away without the guide of the lane. So what I'm thinking about doing is kind of mm. restoring that concept, but the pin manager issues out some line renders pointing from it to where the player's uh, base is. Um, so that could kind of give me the best of both worlds, have one big physics object for the ground or for the lane and, um, but still spawn the pins throughout. And that could that could lead to some pretty cool things because then I could make some kind of almost like maze type structures with, you know, uh, like accelerators that the ball can run into and change directions and you do some pretty cool stuff there. So that's a, a long way of saying I have lots of little ideas for this thing and how to turn it into a fun product. Um, <clears throat> so the two ideas that I had in, ter- in the short term I'm not talking about a finalized product, but just getting something out there. One is to build, to basically polish up what's there, replace the current wave-based mode with the easiest one of my ideas, which is basically pin managers with fixed joints that I can move around um, so the pins attached to the pin manager as a fixed joint, and then I can kind of like have them glide along the ground or fly in, things like that, and then you know they'll they'll move slow enough that they don't break the fixed joint, but the ball hitting them can definitely break the fix joint. Um, and then, so building that with the simplest version and then uploading that to itch.io as a free demo or a pay-what-you-want demo, that would give me a place to have a page on the internet and I could obviously release it on my site as well. Um, just you know, zip up the build, go to itch.io, download there, it says in the description that you need SteamVR. And then, uh, you know, recommend HTC Vive because the other headsets are iffy at this point. And then uh, I could probably do that maybe as early as this week, depending on how much I work on it, or within two weeks, definitely. So that's option one. Option two is get it ready for Steam early access, which I think I would need a lot more. I would... I would feel better about releasing a lot more on steam early access of like, no, this is definitely going to be a thing. And here are the you know four different game modes and there's rough versions of each of them. And there are better assets and better music and better sound effects, all that stuff. Like it is going to be a thing. I'm not just using steam early access to test the market. Cause I kind of don't like it when people do that. Mm-hmm. So um, that would take a, a bit longer, maybe a month or two months, depending on, my availability to work on it, um, and those aren't mutually exclusive. I could go over the HIO route with the demo, and then keep working towards that larger early access release, and then obviously towards the final release. So, what are your thoughts?
0: So, when you started on this, it sounded like one of your objectives was just to build a portfolio piece, mm-hmm. just something that you could have around. So yeah. that people could see that you had a set of skills. Um, is yeah, that Neil, still on the table?
1: Yeah, definitely. That, that's why I, I. That's why I've been thinking about this. This IO access of like having someplace official that people can go get this thing, okay. rather than like me sharing a file from uh, Google Drive or whatever that I've been doing. Right. Um. Yeah, it would be. I, I can definitely see both ways. Like, I think this is a viable product, or at least some of the ideas that I have could be a viable product. But I also really want to build the next thing, which is um, a Windows mixed reality productivity app, with basically just feeding into Doist as a data source and build a visualization with that. And there's lots of other things I want to build. Okay. Um, as kind of mini projects. So. so- then in terms of preference, I kind of want to do everything at once <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, I would say wrap it up get it to i o as quickly as possible um, whatever that means for you mm-hmm. in a state that you can put it out um i wouldn't I wouldn't get too elaborate beyond what you're currently doing. Um, but yeah, wrap the thing up, get it out there, get your name on it, see if anybody touches it, see if you get some feedback, etc., and move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Development-wise, uh, you can always come back to it.
1: Yeah, yeah, I definitely and I definitely will if it's if there's any interest in it, and that, that's why I'm not crazy about. Investing the time to get it to Steam VR or to, or to get it to Steam, and then there not being any interest for it there, like I gotta think I'd rather test with itch first. And even if it's there's no interest with it on itch.io, that's still, you know, an official looking store that mm-hmm. I can send potential customers to. Sure. Um, without I, kind of like bloating Steam, yeah, that type of stuff.
0: I haven't looked all that much. How much VR stuff is on HIO?
1: Uh, last time, like when I did an actual search for the word Steam VR, I found around twenty things. Okay, um, I'm not sure about VR stuff in general. Let's look. Just doing a search for VR. There's quite a few. Yeah, I mean it, it keeps scrolling. I'm seeing stuff for Gear VR and. Um, Couple daydream things. Most of it's Windows stuff, though. Okay. So, so, yeah, there's quite a few things here. Okay. I know, like, I would love to get Vive's attention with this because I think this would be a really good Vive port app, okay. having kind of an arcade style thing. Um, so, maybe I can get it on itch and send them a demo and, like, hey, do you guys have any uh, funding for any developers? Because <laughs> I think this would be really a really cool thing. They do they do have like their Vive Accelerator program and things like that. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I'm eligible for any of that. But I think this is like they're they're doing really cool things in China with all kinds of VRKs with Viveport. And I think this is this type of game lends itself well to that type of environment where maybe I don't want to spend ten or twenty bucks to buy this thing, but I definitely wanna play it or play with some friends once in a while or try it when I see it.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Get the, get the thing minimally polished up, you know, and I would say, give yourself a deadline, Mm -hmm. like a a week sounds great to just go, you know, and start from the things that you have to put in for HIO support, Mm -hmm. like whatever you have to do to make it releasable, do that first and then you can go back and spend whatever additional time that you really want on polishing, but at any point then you could go ahead and push it out
1: yeah yeah definitely having having all the features that I want done and then being able to continue polishing it as like a hobby project after that as well being able to really, mm-hmm. you know point issue point releases on itch yeah good as well.
0: And I don't know that you even need to support or even rough in all of the things if you have a menu option that says, you know, "cool hyper continuous mode" coming soon, and see if anybody asks for it.
1: Mm-hmm. But the free play mode's already there. Mm-hmm. I need. I want to change the scoring for that mode to make it more based on ten pins. So then I want to add in like a basic data object that will save the number of frames versus your score, and basically. Just like that little paper that you used to get in the bowling alley before all the computers uh-huh. moved in. I want to make a a computer version of that, but it would have as many frames as they actually bowled, <laughs> which could be kind of awesome.
0: <laughs> just, just like 37. I bowled
1: a 300.
0: It would take like 37 frames for me to bowl a 300, but...
1: Yeah, a, f- a friend of a friend of mine who tried the game on Friday night. Um she bowled a 300. And I was like, "Yeah, but you threw like 900 balls." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. I also uh, I also invented another mini game at the prototype and play. So the area that I was b- people were basically bowling facing the wall, mm-hmm. and most people would stay back. But they were as they were doing their swing, they would get within six inches of the wall or so. <laughs> so I invented a game of running back and forth between, you know, the desk I was standing at and like where their arm was, like avoiding their arm. And so that was kind of my little mini game to play <laughs> while they were doing the demo.
0: On uh, on the VR meetup, there were a group of us standing near where you were demoing, talking, mm-hmm. and the play area for your game had a tendency to always rotate towards us.
1: Uh (laughs) Uh-huh.
0: So you had people, like, very carefully blocking their lower sensitive areas and stepping away and (laughs) steering around because there's just somebody flailing away with underarm swings. Just thunk. Just waiting to get hit.
1: Yeah, there's definitely some of that. Cool. I, I think... I think we're on the right track. I think I'll write down my requirements for HIO um, and write down, kind of work backwards and see, is that a week? Is that two weeks? I don't want to do more than two weeks really. Um, And then see about getting that done. Uh, Brief side note, I did meet a guy who can do music for this game, and he's also going to help me with some of the sound effects. So that's pretty cool. Um, and maybe he's just someone that I can work with with games going forward with music because he's actually got a ton of talent and uh, a lot of experience with a lot of different genres of music. So It's always cool to meet people like that. I'm like, hey, you're actually good at something that I don't even understand the, even <laughs> the most basic stuff. So. Awesome. Uh, so uh, the, the next idea I want to work on, and we'll, we'll talk about more this more in coming weeks if I end up working on this, but it's something that I wanted to do for a long time in VR of having like a to-do system, project management, task management system in VR and just being able to view my tasks outside of a text based list. So what I thought about doing, I use Todoist um, pretty religiously for just about everything that I do. And I've got like looking at it now, I've got about 20 projects, um, but like every, like, there's even a task in here to water my plants, like every Sunday. Like everything mm-hmm. that I do, makes it into the system before I actually do it. Like I'm the kind of person who needs a weekly reminder to shave, because <laughs> I only actually need to shave once a week, and uh, I will forget if I don't actually have a reminder.
0: Wait, is but is that my problem? Did I just not put the reminder on the list?
1: Yeah, you didn't. Oh, OmniFocus I'll, I'll deleted your reminder, and it just never happened. Man. So Todoist has an API. It's a a REST API with a JSON result. And I thought it would be pretty cool to dig into, to take a a break from Steam and from VRTK and the Vive stuff and spend some time with Windows Mixed Reality Headset and the Windows Mixed Reality Toolkit and playing with some of their features and learning a little bit about that stuff. Also, with the intention of working on a portfolio piece, but maybe at the end of this, having something that I could send to Todoist and say, hey, look at this. You should work this into your app or show it on your blog or whatever.
0: Maybe um, you can hire me to flesh it out.
1: Yeah, definitely. But so what I'm kind of envisioning um, Todoist works on, obviously, everything is a task. There's a projects list, every task belongs in a project, even if that project is the inbox. Um, but you can organize them into your own projects. Every task can have labels, but they don't need labels. And then there are custom filters that you can build. I'm not sure if the filters are something I can actually get via the API. I may just have to build my own filter system, but basically the filters are just a a way of writing, like give me all the tasks that match such and such criteria. So like everything that fits this priority and is between these dates or everything with this label and this priority, things like that. Um, So they've got a pretty good data model, and their API has always been really responsive because I use it with a bunch of other apps. So I thought about building kind of an abstract VR place where um, I can show tasks in a 3D form. So I think I'm just going to start with them like written onto the side of a cylinder. And the cylinders change size based on the priority of the task. They change color based on the color of the uh, project they're associated with. And then maybe the labels are just hanging off the cylinder, or printed below the uh, task content. And even the reason I'm thinking cylinders is because tasks can have comment threads, and I want to be able to pick them up like a scroll and expand the comments out like a an old-fashioned scroll. Okay. And then and then just be able to organize them in 3D space, almost kind of like a a wine rack of to-do list items. <laughs> title i
0: i happen to be reading a sci-fi novel right now whose main character is very very bad at making metaphors <laughs> he he compared what are you trying to say dave <laughs> he compared something at one point to a brick made out of porridge and then had to back up and like explain why that made any sense whatsoever yeah. It was a very deep explanation, but it didn't really make any sense in the context. Anyway, it was just a wine rack of to-do items. Thanks, Joe.
1: <laughs> You're welcome. That's... So, yeah, that, that's my next project. <laughs> and and the, the reason I want to do that in, in Windows Mixed Reality is, one, because I think it's it's better suited for that store. And Microsoft provides better text tools when working in that environment, but they also provide direct access to the, uh, speech to text APIs. So I can just dictate things into my tasks, be able to move them around in 3d space, be able to like basically make like the, the, uh, VR version of a lasso tool where I can just like surround a bunch of objects and move all of them into a project or, um, I really want to have a someday maybe bucket that I can just like pick up a megaphone and yell ideas into the someday maybe bucket. Because
0: <laughs> that's how megaphones and buckets work.
1: Yeah, in my mind. <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, that's I think probably the next thing we're going to do after the bowling thing is wrapped up temporarily. Obviously, all of this is... Um, caveated with Joe finding work to do in the meantime. So that's definitely taking priority right now, which is why I spent five hours working on the bowling demo last week and about 50 hours working on talking to people and trying to find work, which is not as easy to do outside of FileMaker. So I think my my number of days of not doing FileMaker work is getting shorter and shorter. (laughs) I think this week I'm going to have to start sending some emails to a different part of my network. But that's what I got to do.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. But, because I know you're sorry to hear that.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like we joked around about like, oh, poor me. (laughs) Poor old Joe. Can't do what he wants to do for a living. I guess he just has to go back to... Expert consulting in an industry that he spent seven years at where people like him and respect him. Wah, wah, wah.
0: (laughs) He can sell gigs really pretty quickly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, if
0: if you got to go back to the salt mines, they're not horrible salt mines and it pays pretty well.
1: Yeah. But. There's that. That's everything I have. Anything else from you, Dave? No, that about covers it for me. Cool.
0: Well that's our show for today. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm vrhermit underscore Dave.
1: And I'm vrhermit underscore Joe. If you get a chance, like us and review us on your podcast player of Choice. Thanks for listening.